This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Thanks, guys, for that powerful musical worship this morning. If you guys would turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we are going to continue our study in this great Old Testament wisdom book this morning. Very thankful for Kevin, who... Uh, preached last week as we were away on mission trip and hope you were encouraged uh, by him and God's word through him. We're going to read verses 10 through 20 this morning to get our time started and uh, then we'll dive in and see what the Lord would teach us through it. Here's what Solomon writes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also was a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days eats in darkness. he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now it could be tempting this morning to read this passage and when you start with verse 10 of he who loves money and then you go down through and talking about riches and wealth and many of us in this room we can be tempted to think well I'm just a college student I'm just a single adult starting out I'm just a young couple or perhaps I'm 60 and I don't have much in the bank and you could be tempted to think well this passage must not really apply to me very much because this is talking about someone else. That would be tempting for us today. Um, However, um, in so many places in the Bible, when we start talking about wealth, and especially when you get to the New Testament, which we're going to do today eventually, is that when when you gauge where we are living in the West, we would find that by biblical definitions, most of us in this room would fit under the definition category of wealthy. The fact that we actually have indoor plumbing in our homes, uh, the fact that we have roofs over our head, the fact that we actually have a bank account with a banking institution in America, the fact that either we are a current student of or a graduate of an institution of higher learning in the United States of America, these are all factors that make us in the top uh, echelons of financial uh, scales in 
context of the globe this morning. And so when the Bible talks about the wealthy, yes, he's talking to us this morning. Regardless of our income, regardless of what the IRS would categorize you as this morning, we would be wealthy, most of us, in this room. Now, when we start thinking about riches, when we start talking about money, I believe that when we come in through these doors this morning, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, I'm going to make an assumption. And I believe it's a safe assumption that most of us, we really do desire to honor God. And, and, and we, we really want to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. We want to boast in the cross we just sang about just a couple of minutes ago. And we want our lives to count for Jesus Christ. And so when we think about the love of money and when we think about the dangers of that, I don't believe that we wake up in the morning thinking to ourselves, gee, I would love to make a God out of money. Gee, I, I would really love for possessions to define me. And I would really love for the good life to be my ultimate goal of human existence. I, I don't think that we, that we truly say, yes, that's the life for me. But I think that the love of money, that money itself, that wealth, they're far more subtle dangers than that. They stalk us by weakening our resolve and then just eating away at our contentment. Eating away every, at every shopping trip. Eating away at us episode after episode of our favorite HGTV TV show. Uh, thumbing through every catalog, dreaming dream after dream, comparing ourselves to person after person. You see, before we know it, we find ourselves in Jesus' parable of the sower. Who the third type of person, the third type of soil he talks about in, in Mark chapter 4 verses 18 through 19. He says this, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You see, any one of us could fall into this category. So here's where we are today. Now Solomon has already shown us in chapters 1 through 4 and part of chapter 5 that we've already looked at that, that nothing on earth will ever truly satisfy us apart from Jesus Christ. Not career, not possessions, nor relationships, accomplishments, and not even religion, he's told us. Only Jesus truly satisfies but then he gives life, breath, definition, and meaning to all of those good gifts of God. But even with that knowledge, we're still tempted to want the gifts more than the giver. And this is Solomon's point this morning, is do we want the giver more than the gifts? Or do we want the gifts more than the giver so few things on earth fit this bill more than money of wanting the gift more than the giver. And so what Solomon's going to do is he's going to warn us against the love of money. And we're going to see that this isn't just an Old Testament Solomon point of view, but it's also echoed very much so in the New Testament. So let's go down through here. This, is, this actually is one of the most practical 
applicable passages we've looked at so far. We're going to find a warning in almost every single verse here. And so what I want to do this morning is look at seven warnings against the love of money and then come back and look at two solutions or two truths to help us in fighting our discontentment. Because if we're truly honest with ourselves this morning, we would be honest enough to say that discontentment easily eats away at my heart. So here's warning number one. He would tell us, against loving money. Number one, you'll never have enough, he tells us in verse 10. You'll never have enough. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Remember that word vanity means fleeting. It means literally like striving after the wind and trying to bag up the wind so that we can save it and put it in our pantry, right? It doesn't work. It's futile. And so he says the love of money is futile. Not being satisfied with our income is futile. It's vanity. Now we can compare this with a New Testament passage. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, and this may be one of those passages that you're more familiar with, but beginning in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 6, here's what Paul says. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So if Paul says this morning that if you're wearing clothes on your back and if you've had a meal today or you will have a meal today, that's really all you need. With that, you'll, you should be content. Now, I, I want a lot more than that. I, I enjoy a lot of pleasures. And so what, what we learn is the difference between needs and wants is what Paul would tell us. So with food and clothing, we should be content. But he goes on to say this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now that verse 10 really echoes what Jesus said in the parable of the sower, isn't it? That the love of money and the desire of riches, the desires of this world, can, can so encroach upon the good fruit that's growing that it can, it, can choke, it can choke the word, it can choke the growth of God in us because we're so carried away by our desires and the lifestyles that we want to build for ourselves. And so Paul, in echoing what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, we see an eye-opening truth this morning. The love of money knows no income level. Now, it's very easy for us in the West to castigate the rich. Our politicians do this all the time. If the wealthy would just pay their fair share, then your life would be better. And so we pit income level versus income level, and we can only view the wealthy as the bad guys because we who are, have only have a middle class income or who would be below the poverty level, we are pure at heart. You know, we don't struggle with these things, but the New, the New Testament and the Old Testament as well would remind us that the love of money knows no income level. Both the rich and the poor fall victim to its pray because in in Ecclesiastes 5 he says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income you see both the poor and the wealthy can be very dissatisfied with what they have it's not money that's the problem 
We can think someone who has money that automatically makes them evil. It's not the money, it's the love of it. And this is, this is the truth of whether we have little or if we have a lot. As Danny Aiken puts it, Solomon says nothing about an amount. It has everything to do with the heart. Now here's the deal. If you ponder your own position today, it doesn't matter if you have $10.22 in the bank account as a freshman in college or if you have a savings account approaching six figures this morning, or if you have investments that would even top that. If you ponder your own position, you'll quickly recognize that this verse is speaking to you because none of us remains completely content with our income level or with what we have. We always want more. I want you to think about this. For most of us in this room, if we look back over our lifetime, there was a time in your life that you would have jumped at the opportunity to have the job, the income level, the money in the bank, the house, the car, or relationships that you have today. But yet right now, you are looking down the road for what's next. Right now, you're looking for more because the human heart is never content. John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived in the United States, when once was asked how much money was enough, he famously said, just a little bit more. And this morning, we can recognize that we're not so far off from Rockefeller. So here's one of the first warnings that, that Solomon gives us in loving money too much. He says, you'll never have enough. Number two, you'll attract leeches. You'll attract leeches. Verse 11, he says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. Now, this refers to those who would want to consume your wealth, who would want a part of your wealth. Now, you can think about this even very practically. The more money you make, the more money the IRS is going to ask from you. The more things you buy, the more insurance policies you have to attain. The more money you attain, the more charitable causes are going to ask for your help and your assistance. And you may think it would be a great idea to win the lottery today, but the moment you do, not only will the government take their cut, not only will you have to hire uh, a financial consultant, and not only will you have to get more insurance policies, but you're also going to be hearing from a lot of family members, including cousins fourth removed that you've never even heard of before, but they really like you and love you today because all of a sudden you've struck get rich, right? Solomon is so wise. As goods increase, they who want to consume those goods also increase. You know, we, we, we would love to be a millionaire today, right? There's the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Sign me up. We all do. But you know, one of the crazy things in living in the United States of America today is you have to actually have to make $2 million in order to remain a millionaire. If you were handed a million-dollar check right now, best-case scenario, you're only going to walk away with 500000 because of this place called the Internal Revenue System. And so we find out that even thousands of years removed from Solomon, we find out that the words are true. The words of Scripture are most definitely true. I think about my own financial progression. I think about the fact that, look, I, I'm an average middle-class missionary. 
And so I would not be labeled on like the, the aspiring vocations to achieve wealth in the United States of America. But I look at my own progression and I recognize that my life today with, with owning a home and, and owning a vehicle and I mean, I've been opened my world up to insurance policies I never knew I needed. I, I have to keep up with documents in order to turn in to the authorities that I never knew that I would have to turn in with my tax statements. And so even in my own little world, I recognize the fact that as my income level has risen and as my possessions have also increased, there's been a lot more responsibility that's come with that. And, and I'm attracting leeches that I never even knew existed. So that's the second warning that he says about the love, of, uh, the love of money. Number three, he says, you'll also increase your worry. In verse 12, he says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Here's the reality. The more money you have, the more possessions you manage, the more responsibility you have, and the more those things can weigh on your shoulders. Now, Solomon here could be talking about uh, worries, he could, financial worries. He could also be talking about diet. I mean, that's what, the, what he's saying. He says, whether he eats little or much, the laborer will sleep very sweetly. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There, there are some commentators would say that the, the wealthy has, has opportunities to eat things and to gorge on things that the poor person may not have. And so he literally may be kept up at night by his indigestion of the things that he's eaten for the day. But we can also look at this financially. There are just worries that the, the rich person has that the poor person just simply does not have. And, and here I think about my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather, uh, who passed away uh, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, next month, my, my grandfather did not have a high school education. As a matter of fact, he didn't even have an elementary school education. He was never even taught to read. He could not, it, the day he died at 71 years old, he could not read a book. He could not read an announcement that was flashing across the TV screen. My grandfather worked with his hands. He was a carpenter. He literally built the home that he raised his family in, and my grandmother, he and my grandmother raised my brother and me in. My grandfather went to work every day carrying his lunch pail and put on his hard hat. He would come home after a hard day's work every day. He would eat his dinner. He would go to bed somewhere around 7.30 or 8 p.m. and wake up again the next morning at 4.30 or 5. My grandfather never had a problem going to sleep. He simply worked with his hands. He provided for his family. And in, in the terms of the American dream, many people would say he really missed the mark. But by Solomon's standards, he would say he was a good laborer with sweet sleep. The more we have, the more we worry. The more responsibilities we have, the more they weigh down on us. Solomon is telling us in many ways that the simpler that we live, the easier we may sleep. A fourth warning he gives us about the love of money is this. You'll become selfish. You'll become selfish. Verse 13 says that there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. He has so much. He saves so much. He hoards so much that it actually hurts him, Solomon says. And, and, and here's a good truth for us here, that, that yes, we should save. And yes, we should be good stewards. We talked about this in the financial series we did a couple of years ago. 
Yes, we should save, but we should guard against saving too much. We can save so much that it can hurt us. We can save so much that we are so worried that our savings would dip below a certain amount that that becomes God to us, that that becomes an idol to us. And and then if we're not careful, that saving and that hoarding makes us very selfish people when the Bible would want us to be generous people. Now, we're going to talk about this more next week. You, You can see at the top of your notes there that today is money is meaningless without Jesus, part one. Well, next week's going to be part two, and so we're looking a lot at the negative today of some of the negative consequences of loving money. Next week, we're going to look at a lot of the solutions to this and some of the different ways in which God will want us to view money and possessions. But for today, we're looking at these warnings, and he says one of those warnings that you could become selfish. There are even non-Christian studies showing that wealth can affect how you treat other people. That they can actually encourage you to cut people off in traffic and not stopping for pedestrians, making you selfish, unhappy, and even dishonest. You see, when money is the goal, when having money, making money is the goal, and that this world is all there is, that's what can happen to you. You can just become a hoarding, stingy, selfish person. Solomon tells us, and he tells us that that hurts, namely, yourself. Next, not only will you become selfish, he also says you'll never really be secure. You'll never really be secure. Verse 14, he says that not only were they kept by their owner to his hurt, but those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Now, sure. Times have most certainly changed. But just as there are bad investments that you can make today, there were bad investments that people in Solomon's day could make. They existed then too. It's great to save. It's wise to invest. It's wise to multiply what we have so that we can have more. Especially for the sake of advancing uh, advancing wealth, advancing resources for our family, our children, our grandchildren, and yes, our church and the mission of God. Those are good things. Proverbs 13, 22 says this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The Bible also really affirms saving wisely and investing wisely. We live in an age where it's get rich quick. Our church is filled with college students, singles, and young adults who are just starting their married lives together. And in my time in investing in this demographic, here's what I've learned. There are so many of us at the age of 24 or 28, we want exactly what our parents have right now at 50 or 55. But what we don't recognize is that it's taken them 25 to 40 years to amass what they have. We can't live in a 50-year-old's home when we're 25 most of the time. We can't have the savings account that a 70-year-old would have after working a lifetime when we're only 25 or 28. The Bible affirms saving. The Bible affirms investing little by little over time. Proverbs 13, 11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little, will, little by little will increase it. So the Bible affirms this. 
I don't want you to hear me say that saving's bad, that investing is bad, but here's the deal. There is a line between responsible preparation and selfish preservation. Did you hear that? There is a line between responsible preparation and selfish preservation. We selfishly try to preserve ourselves by getting so financially secure that we would look anything in the eye and say, test me, Lord, I'll survive it. And we try to become so financially secure by our investments and our savings accounts. But what Solomon would remind us is you're never really as secure as you think you are. Because it, all it takes is one bad venture. All it takes is one stock market crash. All it takes is one housing bubble to burst. And you've lost 10, 20, even 50 years of investments and savings. So even when we are the wisest that we could be with our resources, it could all be gone at the snap of a finger is what Solomon tells us. Statistics tell us that 60% of families who inherit wealth, 60% of those families squander that inherited wealth by the end of the second generation. And 90% of families will squander it by the end of the third. Even what we leave isn't so secure after we leave it. Studies also reveal that 78% of professional football players, professional football players, some of the wealthiest people in our society, and many of us look at Tom Brady, many of us look at, at, at Malcolm Butler and these guys who are making millions, they're making hundreds of thousands per game, right? 78% of professional football players today are bankrupt or facing serious financial turmoil. Everything's not what it seems on the surface. The point of Solomon is this. You'll never be as secure as you want to be. And even if you are, one incident, one crash will prove that you weren't as secure as you thought you were. So beware of the love of money. Number six, here's a sixth warning. You'll leave it all behind. You'll leave it all behind. Now, we've already looked at this truth when we studied chapter two, when we, when we talked about how pursuing the American dream is also meaningless without Jesus. And we talked about how when we leave it all behind, we can't even trust it to those, uh, what those that we leave it behind, uh, how they're, what they're going to do with it, right? We talked about that. But he reminds us this again. If you look at verse 15, he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? He reminds us again that we can't take it with us. He reminds us again that hearses don't pull U-Hauls. He reminds us that those who die with the most toys still dies. They still die, right? That's what Solomon reminds us here. It echoes Job chapter 1. And you start seeing this theme throughout the scriptures. Job 1 verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul echoes this exact same thing in 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So beware of loving money. It's not ultimate. It won't satisfy you. You can't take it 
with you. Now, this could leave us in a couple of different places this morning. One place it could lead us to is just being in this sense of futility where we just say, who cares? Nothing matters. Money won't last. Money won't ultimately satisfy me. So who cares if I ever have anything? So you don't work hard. You don't provide for your family. You don't save. You don't make wise investments. And that could leave you in a very unfruitful place. And I would even argue that it can make you an unfruitful believer in many ways because God is actually honored by you working hard, providing for yourself, providing for your family, and providing for your needs and not having other people do that. That is a biblical principle that goes Old Testament to New Testament. So if that's just where you go to this morning, that would be an unfruitful, unhelpful place, scripturally speaking. A second place this could lead us to is, well, I better live it up while I can. Because it's not going to last, and I can't take it with me, so I should make as much money as I possibly can and have as many experiences as I can, squander as much of it as possible because I can't trust it with my kids, I can't trust it with my grandkids, and so let's just be selfish and hoard it, live it up, eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow, I may die, right? That would be an unhealthy, unhelpful place as well. A third place it could lead us is just simple indifference. I'm just going to live every day as it comes Take my money, pay my bills, share a little bit, whatever, zippity-doo-dah, move on. I would argue that's not very helpful either. I would argue that there's a fourth way that is much better. And we're going to get there towards the end in just a moment. But it's to be wise, work hard, save well, spend well, give well, be generous. This is the way that honors God. We're going to talk about this more a little bit in a moment, and it's going to be a precursor to what we talk about next week in a much more extensive way. Ultimately, where we should get to this morning is to view our wealth, to view our resources through the same lenses that Martin Luther did. As I shall forsake my riches when I die, so shall I forsake them while I'm living. I don't see them as ultimate. My identity is not wrapped up in them. They're not ultimate. They won't satisfy me completely. And so I'm going to be careful to not give them too high of a place, a higher place than they belong. But I'm going to be wise with it as I live. A seventh warning that Solomon gives us here in guarding against the love of money is he says you'll also become a miserable person. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 describes a miser who's living in a miserable existence. He says, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. This is ultimately what love of wealth, money, and possessions will do to a man or woman. It will make you a miserable, lonely, angry, sick person, is what Solomon says. All his days he eats in darkness by himself. He may have the fattened calf. He may have the best food that money can buy, but he's alone in the dark eating by himself. And he's in much vexation and sickness, anger, and we could probably even say bitterness and resentment because he's all alone. This, when left by ourselves, left to ourselves, at the altar of the God of money and possessions, this is what could happen to us. 
It reminds me a little bit of the fictional character Ebenezer Scrooge, whom Dickens wrote about. And Scrooge, of course, said, Bah humbug. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. That's a miserable person. That's a miserable, wealthy wretch of a person. The narrator described him like this. He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, old Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Is that not what verse 17 basically says? All his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is what the love of wealth, this is what the love of possessions will do to us. Now here's where we are, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. We live in the wealthiest country on the face of the planet. Even those who live below the poverty level in our country still have resources and possessions that much of the world would never even understand or know. This isn't to make little of the, blight, the plight of the poor in our country, but it's to recognize just how wealthy we are. And here's where I know that we are here and where this scripture applies to us. We always want more. Catalogs are shipped to our home daily, telling you that last year's model is so out of date. We need to replace it. Our cars, once they hit, once they hit that magical 100,000 mark, it's time to trade it in, right? Once we live in a home, we move into a home, whether it's our first apartment or whether it's our first condo that we buy, and within a year, we start finding out all the things that we hate about it. We loved it when we moved in, it was the best thing in the world. But within a few months, within a year, we're discontent. We want bigger. We want cooler. We want warmer. We want more efficient. We do this with clothes. We do it with automobiles. We do it with our homes. We do it with our jobs. We pray for employment. We want God to bless us. And so he does. And he gives us a job. And we love it. Until six months in, and we found out all the imperfections of our bosses. We found out all the problems with our other employees whom we work with. And now we want to be somewhere else where not only can we work and provide for our families, but we want to work and be the happiest that we possibly can be. We're constantly discontented. And Solomon is challenging us here against that discontentment. Because the love of money, the love of possessions, the love of safety, the love of security will actually lead us to some very damaging places. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a contrast here. And not only does he give us seven warnings against the love of money, he's also going to give us at least two truths to counter our discontentment. And so let's look at these in verses 18 through 20 as we get ready to close our time in a moment. Number one is this. Recognize that God is the giver of all your gifts. God is the giver of all your gifts. I want to read verses 18 and 19. And I want you to underline or circle every time we hear some connotation of God giving to us or the word gifts. 
Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. See, good and fitting in the context of money is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Three different times we see some form of this word gift or giver. God is the giver of everything that we have. And I just want to pause for a moment and ask us this question. In all of our grumbling, complaining, murmuring, and, and, and covetousness that we have in our lives, when was the last time you simply paused and just thanked God for all the blessings and gifts that he's given to you? Not just in a big picture form, but in a very specific form. When was the last time you thanked God for the house or the apartment in which you live? When was the last time you got dressed in the morning and walked out your door and said, thank you, God, that I have clothing on my back today? And I actually had an entire wardrobe from which to choose. When was the last time you thanked God for the vehicle, even if it's that clunker that you didn't even know that it would get you to work that day, but you got in the parking lot and you thanked God that he's given you that clunker of a car to get you where you need to get? When was the last time you thanked God for having a bank account that has at least some funds in it? One of the cures to anxiety, one of the cures to our discontentment, one of the cures to our covetousness is pausing and acknowledging God as the giver of all of your gifts. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 31 and through 32 actually points towards Jesus because it is ultimately through Jesus that we as Christians have anything good and right and blessed in our lives. The writer says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the key in this passage. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's the ultimate gift. You see, the ultimate need in your life is not a bigger house. It's not more clothes and it's not a nicer car. It's not a raise at work. The ultimate gift, the ultimate need that you have is salvation from your sins and to be made right with God. And Paul says that God gave you this in Jesus Christ. He did not spare his own son. He gave him so that your ultimate need would be provided. So if he would do that, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if you're anxious today because of where your bank account is, if you're coveting your neighbor or your brother's home today, if you're, if you're desiring that better job or desiring that nicer car today, we need to be reminded that we've been given everything we need through Jesus Christ, God didn't spare him. And if he didn't spare him, he will also graciously give me all things, not necessarily that I want, but all things that I need. And that will battle covetousness. 
that will battle discontentment. So the first truth to counter your discontentment is to recognize God is the giver of all your gifts, but he doesn't stop there. Solomon goes on one step further. He also says that we need to recognize that God is the goal of all your joy. God is the goal of all your joy. He says in verse 19 that everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And then he says in verse 20 that this person who does that, who enjoys what God has given him, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Here's where I believe this is so important. Culturally speaking, and even in the Christian setting, we are tempted to believe that Christians should not even have nice things. Christians shouldn't drive nice cars, shouldn't live in a nice house, should not enjoy a nice vacation because everything that's godly, there should be no enjoyment of it on planet Earth. We can think this way. We can be very tempted to think that. And in no way are we preaching prosperity gospel here. We're not preaching that if you're a believer in Jesus that all of a sudden you're going to have wealth and you're going to have big houses and all of these things. Not in the least bit. But we also shouldn't think that people are ungodly simply because they have those things. The Bible actually tells us that God gives us possessions. God gives us blessings, not so that we feel guilty that we have them, but so that we would enjoy them. And that God is actually glorified in our lives when we do enjoy them. Now, is this just an Old Testament principle here? No, Paul echoes it in the New Testament. Because in 1 Timothy 6.17, it's almost as if he's quoting Ecclesiastes 5. He says, as for the rich in this present age, who are the wealthy? Who are the rich? We are. We can say that together. Who are the wealth? Who are the rich? We are. Right? Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That new apartment you moved into last summer, that new sofa you bought that you sit on as you're watching your TV or watching the movie in the evening, that vacation that you're planning with your family this summer, the car that you were given or the car that you bought last year, Enjoy that. Be thankful for it. Recognize God as the giver, but enjoy it. And in the enjoy it, in the enjoyable part of it, in the joy that's in your heart, you'll glorify God, is what Solomon says. Now, here, here are four options to consider as we close, with God being the goal of all your joy. I want you to follow me on this. When he says that God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and that we will not much remember the days of our lives because God keeps us occupied with joy in our hearts. It seems like there are four options here when we think about money and possessions in this life. First, I can have things and enjoy God in them. Or I can have no thing and still enjoy God. 
Those are two options there. So I can have things and enjoy God with them and through them, or I can have things, I can have nothing, but I can still enjoy God because my joy in God can't just be tied to the things. But then there are two other options. I can also have things and not enjoy God. And Solomon would say that misses the whole point of life. I could actually have things and not enjoy God. This is actually the indictment against the person who has an insatiable love for money and possessions. They have, but they do not enjoy God through them. But I also recognize I can have no thing and not enjoy God. There are those of us who live below the poverty level. There may even be someone in this room right now homeless and, and, and you don't even have a bank account. You don't have that apartment to go home to. And we can think that somehow the wealthy are more the problem than you are because you don't have and they do. But that doesn't automatically make you a winner in God's eyes because you can have no thing and still not enjoy God and you will suffer the same consequences and the same eternity as the person who has everything and doesn't enjoy God. So it seems like we have four options this morning, and there's, one, there, there's, there's a pathway that God wants us to travel. He wants us to be on that path that whether we have lots of things or whether we have no things, that our joy and our contentment are in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, alone. That's where He wants us to be. Because if we're not there, then money, career, and possessions are all meaningless and futile because they only find their meaning and their purpose, their definition in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so this morning, I'm not sure where God would have you. There may be some places in your life where you should repent and repent of the, the unholy place that you've put money and possessions you may be in the place where God is calling you to enjoy those things more and to give thanks to Him more. You may be in the place this morning where you simply need to come to Jesus for the first time in your life so He can give you the power to enjoy things and to enjoy life the way in which He meant for you to enjoy them. And you can do that by repenting and placing faith in Jesus. And next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this same uh, the same topic, but we're going to be looking at the passages around verses 10 through 20 and to see some, some anecdotes to this. And we're going to look at some antidotes to this as well. Like what are some opposites? What are some cures to having an insatiable love for money? How can we use our money and our possessions the way in which God wants us to? That's going to be next week's topic. But today, let's heed the warnings against a love for money. Father, we pray today, recognizing that in Jesus, we have everything that we need. We have life. We have sustenance. We have homes. We have transportation. We have clothes. We have food. You have supplied our lives with what we need, and we recognize there are many places where we want Help us today, Father, to know the difference between needs and wants. Help us to trust today that in Jesus you've given us and supplied our every 
need in, in him for salvation. And that if he's done that, then how much more will he graciously give us all things? Father, guard our hearts today from temptation. Guard our hearts from an unholy fascination with wealth, with things. I pray today that we would lay them on the altar of your grace. And I pray on that altar that you would burn our idolatry. You would burn our covetousness. You would burn our jealousy. You would burn our discontentment. And in place of it, I pray that you would give us contentment in you, gratitude towards you, and generosity towards all. And as a result, I pray that we would have joy in our hearts because we are attaining, using, and giving our resources the way in which you desired for them to be. And we pray all these things because of Jesus. Amen.